This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Hi, friends. I'm so glad you come along for today's More to the Story podcast. Would you hit a like or subscribe or share this with a friend? That would be a really big help to us. Today, I'm real excited to have on the podcast Dr. Kevin Watson, who has just released a book called Perfect Love. And we're going to talk a lot about it on today's podcast. I think you'll find it incredibly helpful. I love this conversation with Kevin. I mean, he's somebody I've wanted to meet for a long time, and you'll be able to get that sense right away. Um, again, just a reminder about what's happening with this podcast. This summer, we're rolling out interviews, but very soon, probably in the midsummer, we'll start to publish other content. Um, there's some other teaching that we're going to be doing. Thanks to all of you who've completed a survey that's helped us with that. If you go on our on my website, you can sign up for an email list, and we'd love to have you be more engaged at andymillerthird.com. I'm really thankful that WPO Development has stepped up and is sponsoring this podcast as we get started. Keith Waters is CEO of that organization, and he says this. He says, if you don't don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. Isn't that true in our personal lives and in our business life as well? Keith and his company can help you develop a strategic plan, a mission planning study, a capital campaign. They can lead you in the process. When I served in Tampa, they did a great job. Keith's company coming alongside of us. I highly recommend them. And I wouldn't have them here if he wasn't awesome, if he couldn't come alongside of you and help you. He is the type of person and his team and the people who work with him do an amazing job. So I encourage you to check out Keith's work. Um, you you can go to info at wpodevelopment.com and or you can just google them at wpo development it's a great team keith's dad was a great um person and kind of a legendary person at salvation Army, but keith himself does great work so i just want to encourage you to check him out now check out more to the story podcast with dr kevin watson Welcome to the More to the Story podcast with Andy Miller. I'm so excited that you've joined us here. Really, it means a lot to me that you've taken time, the various people who've subscribed to this podcast, who've liked it, who are watching on YouTube. It really helped us, particularly since this is just the beginning of this ministry. If you're able to like this, if you're able to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you have, try saying that a few times fast podcast platform uh, or on, on uh, YouTube as well. And if you could, if you like what you hear, if it's helpful to you, if you can share it on social media, again, this just gives us an opportunity for the content that we're releasing to come through in a clearer way. Also, you can go to my website and sign up for our mailing list where you'll hear some things on a regular basis, some content that we're producing. We're really excited about this, particularly as I'm entering this next phase. Now, I am excited to, today to introduce to my audience. Some of you already know him, and if you do, I'm so glad that you do, Dr. Kevin Watson. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I mean, I feel like I, you and I should have known each other years ago. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I love you. I mean, I'm so thankful for the influence you've had on the church and through your scholarship and all that's going on. I mean, we even lived on my last appointment was, uh, now this was five years ago, but I think we overlapped a little bit. I lived in Gwinnett County and I get the sense that you currently live there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I do live in Gwinnett County. Yep. Yep. I didn't know that, uh, but yeah, we've been here for seven years. So we overlapped by two. So I was in, um, my, our, my Abby's, my second to last appointment as Salvation Army officers was serving the Salvation Army there. That's on Sugarloaf. Uh, oh, yeah. so just up probably not too far from you. So, and, uh, currently at the moment you teach, at Emory or Candler School of Theology, but you and I are both doing something very similar. We are transitioning. <laughs> we're, we're going west, but we're, they're, they're, we're both going west, but we're also 
doing the opposite. I'm leaving the local church and going to the academy. You're leaving yeah. the academy and going to the local church. So, so tell us about what's going on in your life. Yeah, um, I accepted a, a, an appointment to uh, become the pastor of discipleship at First Methodist Church in Waco, Texas. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. My A lot of my teaching and scholarship has been focused on trying to equip the church to um, see kind of where we've been and where we've we've had the most fruit in our own history and heritage and really working hard to try to help the church to retrieve that and reclaim it. And over the past few years, I've just felt kind of more and more of a burden um, for for the local church, not just in the obvious way that it's important, but in my own ministry and work and um, just a stronger desire to be more clearly connected in in leadership um, through through the work that I do. And um, we've been active in the church that we attend here, but it's it's different when your full time job is is in a seminary context than than when it's actually kind of on the ground in the local church. And um, so I'm hopeful that there will still be opportunities for for teaching and, and some some space occasionally for writing. But I'm really excited to just deep kind of firmly plant my feet on the ground in a particular local church community. And uh, one of the things that I'm really wanting to do is to try to help the church to to think about discipleship and dis- develop discipleship systems for the church. And part of that, I think, in my world that's exciting is that there's, there's an opportunity to network and connect with other folks who are uh, evangelical Methodists or Wesleyans um, to, to try to figure out how to do this together so that I think there's an opportunity for, um, you know, Seedbed has already so effectively, I think, created a movement. But the questions that I get asked are almost never like scholarly questions. They're almost never scholarly objections. They're more practical yeah. questions. Like, how do you actually do this? And so right, right. I'm excited to have a chance to to put my hand to that plow and, and hopefully then have as a result, better answers to those questions when they come up. Yeah. And you just mentioned seedbed. And if anybody in my audience doesn't know what seedbed is or who seedbed is, you need to, and I hope that you will. Um, seedbed is a publishing platform, but it's also really this, this group that originally centered out of Asbury Theological Seminary. Um, but the idea is like, they're really casting a vision for renewal within the church, an awakening, a, a, like a new revival. But at the same time, it comes from the expression of like an orthodox Wesleyan theology that emphasizes the things that are in, like in Kevin's books that we're going to talk about here, like the class meeting, the band meeting. These are things that we've, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a second, uh, Kevin. Like, I mean, you've influenced me and our church and other Salvation Army churches to really put these things in place. And at the same time, um, the also an emphasis on the work of the spirit and sanctifying the believer. Um, these are key emphases and wonderful practical resources. That's a publisher of Kevin's book. And there actually is a kind of a interesting, I'm Andy Miller the third. Uh, my son's Andy Miller fourth, and I'm used to like there being a lot of Andy Millers around. But the director of publishing mm-hmm. is yep. Andy Miller, not related to me. So uh, if you see that name around, that's part of what's uh, it's it's not me. But but Kevin, I, I'm really interested in this. I mean, you you're coming from a place where you were. I mean, I, I mean Emory University, uh, full time tenured um, pro- theology professor. I mean, that's a huge thing to leave. It must have been like a really clear leading from God. Yeah, it was. Um, I had a, a sense it wasn't it wasn't really entirely related to Emory, but it was a variety of things in our life. Um, some of it was was personal family stuff. So our family lives in mostly in Oklahoma and Texas, and oh, interesting. Um, we have some some dear family members whose whose health is um, 
is, is seems to be getting worse and that um, we just wanted to be closer to. Um, so that was a big factor, but there also was just a sense um, that, that my wife and I had that doors were closing here and it was, it was, mm. you know, a time to be open to, you know, to God opening a door that might be surprising and, and to, to, to really be prayerful about whether that was a calling to walk through. And um, this particular door was, was indeed surprising, but um, when we had a chance to, to kind of go together to, to Waco and spend several days um, yeah. yeah, we just, we just had a, a clear sense of calling. Like this is a place that um, we think we're supposed to be. And um, everybody at the church that we've met and interacted with have, have just been exceptional. And so we're, yeah, we're, we're really excited to to join in. And the pastor, I won't to talk about this too much longer, but I'm really interested. The pastor of the church, Ryan, um, I don't know him well. We were, he was finishing, I think, at Asbury Seminary while I was starting. But I remember, like, as a salvationist, and you have to kind of imagine, like, the evangelical Wesleyan world, the, the army is kind of just barely putting our toe in there. Uh, mm. uh, we, we need to do more. But uh, when I went to Asbury Seminary, I got connected to this whole other world. And I think, is it, it Ryan, right, is the name of the pastor there? He, um, he was the president of the student body. And I remember him saying like, look, I could have gone to other official Methodist seminaries in, on a full ride. The, the, my conference would have paid for it. But he, he mentioned like going there because um, he knew the type of, of like product that he would receive and who he was being called to be. And I remember like being connected to that world. And that's part of like what I want to do through this podcast is, and, and not just this is my platform as a whole, is to help people get connected resources like the ones you produce and what's going on in evangelical Methodism, because like it's mirrored in the Salvation Army, even some of the tensions that we have. So it's in light of that. I want to talk about your new book. I'm so excited about it. Perfect love. And I was honored to be able to write an endorsement for it. So mine's down there. And um, uh, Andy Miller from Seedbed asked me to, and JD Walt asked me to connect to some Salvation Army folks. And I gave all, uh, several commissioners and the general. I not, none of the commissioners responded, but the general of the Salvation Army gave an endorsement. And so that pushed me down a few pages, but I, I, I still made it. I still made my, my endorsement. So I'm honored that I, I got in there, but also so glad that General Brian Peddle, who's a friend who's been on my podcast, uh, was able to share. So tell me about this book. Like what, what led you to this and what is it that you hope will, it will accomplish? Yeah, well, I, I have to say first that the, the honor is mine. It's not, it's not oh. yours. And so thank you for your endorsement and thank you for that connection. The, the folks at Seabed were over the moon excited about your, your connection to, to General Peddle. That was, uh, you know, the, the emails ex that were exchanged there were uh, exultant in a way I, I had not experienced <laughs> before. So that was a, a pretty neat moment. Um, and for, for anyone listening, who's not in, as familiar with Salvation Army's kind of structure, that's, it sort of is like the Pope of <laughs> the Salvation yeah, Army. It's like the, the head, the key leader uh, internationally. And so right. that's a, it, it was it was a really big deal and a, a and he he was his endorsement was was very gracious um so the book the book came about i've written two books out of a sense of i would say divine calling um mm -hmm. or sort of a sense of divine conviction that this is the time to write them and the first one was the class meeting yeah. when i wrote that book uh it came out of a general conference that i was watching i think it was in 2012 um and 
And I remember just feeling so in the United Methodist Church. And I remember just this is our our every four year meeting. That's that's our kind of official how we are represented as as a whole body and make decisions. Right. It's our governance structure. And I remember just feeling very discouraged. And it was almost like the Holy Spirit took me through kind of a series of questions. Like, is what you're feeling from me? Is this how I want you to feel? Is there really nothing that you can do? Are you really kind of powerless in this in this dysfunctional system? And and I, and I remember just having this, like, it was like my mind was brought to like, it's, you know, you could try to raise up a movement of class meetings uh, and that the church would be different if in four years, the next time the general conference meets, there were a thousand class meetings um, wow. and meeting across the church. And, um, and so anyway, that, that book came out of that sort of like just real conviction, like it's time, it's time to write this book. And the interesting thing about it was, that book was very easy to write. It just sort of came together pretty quickly. I was teaching um, crazy amount at that time um, based on our financial, you know, just family dynamics. I was teaching a lot of overload courses. And so I remember sitting at our dining room table in this two bedroom apartment we lived in in Seattle and trying to just, you know, write a little bit more every night after the kids had fallen asleep before I fell into bed tired and it just, it just sort of happened. Yeah. Um, and then this book, Perfect Love, is the second one. And it was it came out of a conversation with Andy at Seabed, where at the end of it, he gave me a, a list of sort of ideas he had for what he thought Seabed needed to, to publish. Um, and I think one of them was called Grand Depositum. Uh, and, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, you know, I was like, I have wanted to write a book about the doctrine of entire sanctification for as long as I can remember. Um, but there was something about the conversation that we had had in that sort of broader context that I just, as soon as I saw it, it, it really felt like this divine sort of like spotlight shown on it. Like this is, this is the book that needs to be written now for such a time as this. And the specific concern was in, in my world, there's, there's a lot of talk and planning and, and movement towards it can be framed in a lot of different ways, all of which express different values and so forth, schism, division, right. um, and so forth. But, but basically, there, there's a new expression of Methodism that's being formed. And, and I remember thinking it would be a, a, a shame if this new church, this kind of conservative or evangelical Wesleyan um, right. expression right. that comes out of the UMC's um, collapse if that church didn't have the doctrine of entire sanctification at its center, because Wesley himself said, this is the reason God raised us up. And so wow. yeah. uh, it would be a huge mistake and missed opportunity to start a new movement without sort of collectively saying, we own this ridiculous optimism that God's Amen. grace can change us and save us and rescue us, deliver us from sin to the uttermost. Yeah. Um, and so so the book was, it first came from a, almost like a kind of rallying cry, you know, yeah. to, to sort of my people to say, remember who we are and claim it boldly as we step into the future, as we step into what's next. Um, and, I, and I think, uh, like, yeah, yeah. what I love about that is like where we're headed. And, and I, I, I want to kind of like raise up the kind of slight warning flag to the Salvation Army to look at the things that are happening in the United Methodist Church and, and my friends in the Nazarene Church. Free Methodist Church, all kind of like the, the Wesleyan holiness denominations. Like, it's just be aware of what's going on for our United Methodist brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the thing I want to uh, love about what you're saying is that it's not just about um, what we're against. 
Like we're not talking like in what you as the global Methodist church, so Westland Covenant Association, evangelical Methodist, whatever, however you describe it, you're, you're, you're presenting a picture of what we're for. Not just like, I mean, of course, we, we disagree about the nature of revelation, about the human body, about sexuality. Like these are key markers that represent something else underneath it. But at the outset of this movement, as it's coming together, I love that you're saying like the core of it is centered in this reality, this ridiculous mm -hmm. optimism. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And I, I don't want to go too far down that, that rabbit trail, but I also... Um, you, what you said prompted another thought in me that, that part of what's hopeful to me too about those conversations is that there's also, um, it's also helpful to highlight the things we don't disagree about. So kind of on yeah. the other side of the street, there's disagreement about the divinity of Jesus, right? right? There's, there are people who would disagree with me on human sexuality and would be adamant that they're orthodox in matters of, you know, Christology. And that's right, true, right. but there are also people on their same team, so to speak, who disagree with them right. about the divinity of Jesus. And so there's there, part of what's exciting and energizing to me is the the things that have, have troubled me most about the United Methodist Church is just, I just think the word incoherence comes to mind a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's just a deep theological incoherence that I think actually was written into the creation, the formation of the UMC in 1968. I think it was mm. actually intended to be theologically incoherent um, and that we're reaping what we sowed. Wow. And it's, it's, it's not good. Um, you mean it's like I, and facing so, the pluralism that is at the, at the start yeah, of it? Like, so there was, we're kind of like, we will be open to, I mean, open hearts, open doors, open mind. Like there's a little bit of that that was in the foundation, right? Yeah, there was a, there was, there was an attempt to basically minimize the doctrinal standards which were historic and go back to the beginnings of american or at least the er, very early and and american methodism as a denomination mm -hmm. by having like a preface that was called our theological task that tried to sort of say here's what they mean and what it said in part was that doc doctrinal pluralism or theological pluralism is a good thing it's helpful mm. for a community and I think that Albert Outler, who came up with that language, meant something very different by wow. that than how it's come to be received, uh, in fairness to him. But in the tradition of the UMC, young as it is, it came to mean that, like, theological incoherence is good and actually required. Like, if you're arguing for coherence or you're arguing for, for specificity or exclusion based on theological claims, then you're not United Methodist is kind of how that came to to play out and you know this is this is a whole other class so to speak but part of the problem with that is when you start to make those kind of moves what you're doing actually is excluding yourself from the mm. great tradition of christianity wow. which has always wow. made exclusive theological claims and so you actually put yourself in a very tiny minority of people who would call themselves christians but mm. would insist on lack of like that you're not going to remove someone from clergy status because they express heretical Christology, which right. United Methodists in point of fact do not, not right. that all do, but you can, there's, there are people who write public blogs that right. express heretical, um, like objectively heretical viewpoints with no, with no church discipline, right. With no, nothing that happens. Right. So anyway, I think that that's, that's part of what's exciting to me too, is that it's, you know, it's what we're for is most important as far as like rhetorically, naming because these are beautiful things that it's that for me i don't have to whip myself up into a frenzy to be passionate about them i'm passionate about them Amen. so it's yeah it's easy to talk about the importance of community and connection and a cultural context that is forgetting how to connect well together in person it's easy to talk about our need for transformation and growth and and holiness with a god who 
freely gives good gifts to his children and those kinds of things. But I also find it to be exciting to talk about, you know, the, the coming to being of a church that can actually make truth claims to its people with a real conviction behind them. We actually believe something, we believe it together and we're holding it up for you and offering it to you. Um, and right. we'd love for you to join with us if you, if you can hold to that too. Um, right. And the, the, the last thing I'll say is that the, the other piece that's exciting to me, although it always feels like it's a harder sort of sell, harder for people to, to really embrace, is that high expectation, high demand churches grow. It's just sociologically, yeah. you just see it over and over again. And so for me, being a part of a chance to say to people, like, let's not back up and sort of mm. be embarrassed about our uniqueness or our distinctiveness, but right. let's actually press into it. And lift it up more visibly for, for our collective, for our membership, and ask yeah. us to actually own it, to actually be who we say that we are, Amen. Uh, instead of lowering the bar until you can't trip over it anymore. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you, I heard you say something similar, and I, I encourage people, maybe I can share a link to this. You were able to share the commencement address at the Evangel and Booth's College's commencement couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm not sure. It, it happened in early June, and we'll, we'll share a link to that. And you mentioned that. And kind of in connection this army and one of the things that, that we have now people are very well aware of like our uniforms our public presence those type of things but what many people don't realize is kind of high commitment i don't think i think the uniform is kind of almost superficial to that what the real high commitment is is anybody who becomes a soldier remember the Salvation army signs our articles of faith or our, our some that used to be called articles of war and there are 11 really clear orthodox statements and then there's a, a lifestyle commitment as well and sometimes people think those go into the extreme like actually abstinence from alcohol and, and tobacco i mean um so like there is this like high expectation of what's involved but it's easy for us like you said to downplay that but churches that grow and not just for the growing the the kingdom growth comes when we put out the truth of like what we want people to experience and ultimately like i think we want people to experience perfect love we mm. want people we want people to know like it's yes. it's we want to move beyond like just getting forgiven um this is why i said like the my i tried my creative line in endorsing your book was um i will i i, I tried to be creative uh was i will i'll be recommending perfect love for the rest of my life right <laughs> i'll be because I, I want to offer the doctrine but i also yeah. i think that your book is really a, a classic expression. And I compared it in my endorsement to some of the writings of Samuel Logan Brengel from the Salvation Army's tradition. Mm. Be even like, even if you just look at the, the table of contents, the basic type of questions, what is it? How do I receive it? These type of things. Now you brought up this word that's, a, that's one that's hard to understand, but it's important. Depositum, or uh, maybe I'm not saying it right. The grand depositum. This was John Wesley's language. And I want to highlight for my listeners too, Kevin's a historical theologian, somebody who is... Um, kind of worked in history of Christian thought. So what John Wesley actually said really matters to him. And, I, and he's a Wesley scholar, so maybe we can trust as he says these things. So, but what do you mean by the grand depositum? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's, it's a, I assume, I'm not, I'm not an expert in Latin, but I think it's a Latin phrase that he's kind of pulling in. But it means just the big deposit, right? It's the, it's the main thing that God entrusted or gave to um, the, the people called Methodists. And he says then and later in that quote, and it's the chief reason that he seemed to have raised us up. Um, and so mm. the way that I put it, you know, in, in my own language is that 
preaching, teaching, and helping people receive the doctrine of entire sanctification, Christian perfection, or perfect love is, is the reason that Methodism exists. It's the gift God gave to us and the reason that he, the Holy Spirit breathed life into us uh, and raised us up. And so if we're, if we're embarrassed by the doctrine because we think it's, you know, it gets us too far ahead of our skis, or if we've lost our conviction that it's true, uh, and those kind of things, then, you know, in, in my mind, we should then expect to, to decline because our own founder said, this is the reason we have spiritual vitality. It's the reason we wow. exist uh, is, is to, to press in hard after, after this particular, and it's not just that it's a truth, it's a truth that's experienced, right? It's Amen. this particular understanding of what happens for those who receive all the promises of the gospel. Like what, what is the fullness of the gospel like when it's actually expressed or manifest in a, in a believer's life. And we believe that it's perfect love, um, that that's, that's what it is. And it's something that you first receive uh, that, that then transforms and changes you. So that's like grace always at every level of the Christian life, right? God gives you the gift and receiving the gift changes you. Amen. That's part of being the, the name of this podcast, the more to the story podcast is a theological connection as well. Saying like, there's more to the story than just kind of getting in. There's like yeah. moving, moving from the porch to the house. There's more to the story than just forgiveness. There's really this concept of, of perfect love. And I like that you use that language. Of course, the, the, the words entire sanctification can be confusing to people. Um, so help me understand like even like the the choice of the words like what what are you trying to emphasize by using perfect love as opposed to some of the other type of words that are often used to describe this doctrine yeah well at, at one level that that's a uh it's complex because that's a conversation that comes through your your publisher um okay <laughs> so it's funny because i think i initially named the book grand depositum okay and and that like there was a lot of pushback and I, that's why I was, I was kind of like smiling when I was remembering the meeting with Andy and the thing he gave me, I was like, I think I actually got the title from him. And it's, it's, it's not, neither one of us is being creative. It's just borrowing Wesley's own language, but right. Um, perfect love. I think seedbed was correct. It was, they suggested it. And I think they were right that it for, if the goal of the book is to help people who have some familiarity with this doctrine to embrace it passionately, but also to help it be a resource for those people to then connect with folks who don't know anything about really deeply about what it means to be a Methodist or a Wesleyan, then it needs to be more accessible, you know, and Grand Depositum is not accessible. That's right. Um, and perfect love is more accessible than entire sanctification, right? That's still pretty like heavy fraught. Like you have, you need context. You need some kind of you need to have taken theology 101, right? Before sure, you even sure. re, or even going to probably use the word sanctification in your vocabulary. Um, and so that was, I think that's the main reason, but it also does a beautiful job of, of evoking what it is, right? That and, and that the reason that I've always been, so one of the pushbacks of, of entire sanctification is that it, it can lead to legalism and it can lead to a kind of like heaviness of spirit where you're always focused on what's wrong and how you've right. fallen short and so forth. And it can lead to a kind of despair, which shouldn't, isn't what the gospel at its, is aiming towards. It's good news. Right. Uh, and perfect love, I think does, does a good job of, of sort of connoting what it is, right. That you, who doesn't want to be loved and who doesn't want to be loved completely or perfectly. Right. Uh, and there's also a really, there 
you know, wordsmiths and, and the folks at Seedbed are, they're so good at the creative side of this kind of work. Perfect love is a great word because, or phrase, because it, it's ambiguous about whether it's really saying that I have perfect love or whether I'm receiving perfect love. Right. And right, that, right. that it, so it has this, it's, it's helpful in that the goal of, of the Christian life from a, from a Wesleyan perspective is to receive God's perfect love, Amen. which is beautiful. And, and it, and that's what changes you. That's what transforms you is that I am being perfectly loved. I'm receiving perfect love from, from the father who sent his son um, and, and that, that then actually breaks the bondage that I am in to the ways of sin and death and breaks the power of sin in my life and enables me to then respond to the perfect love that's been given to me with, um, yes. with gr- growth and grace and greater and greater. And the, the ultimate aim is to be able to love as, as I'm loved. I mean, that's one of the big critiques that people often say, even, even other theological traditions will come along and suggest Look, you can't. I mean, we're all sinners. We're going to sin all the time. I mean, part of this has to do um, like we're we're always sinning. We're always a sinner, always a saint. This is just something that's overly optimistic and it can lead you to a, kind of a spiritual triumphalism that isn't healthy. And who are you to think that you're not not sinning? And some of this seems to like to be uh, caught, too, on a, on a definition of sin. Um, do you feel like that's a, a key piece that has to be worked out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Wesley defines sin in a really precise way, a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. Right. So there's, it's conscious, like you, it's, it's like the child who disobeys a direct instruction their parent has given them knowingly, right? right? They know, like, you know, I was told not to do this and I'm choosing to do it anyway, because I want to. Um, And it's, which is different than, you know, sometimes I think, sometimes I think the disagreements within the, the body of Christ around this doctrine are semantics. It's, is what is sin? Is sin an unconscious and involuntary transgression of an unknown law of God? Well, that's right. something that's harder to feel confident you've rooted out because there's a, there's a way in which that's, it's not, it's not even fully known to your conscience if you've done it. And, and so Wesley yeah. is defining it in a really specific way. And I think that's probably one of the main places where, I would push back if I was going to try to, you know, make an argument to critique it would be at that level of like the definition of sin is so specific that it doesn't encapsulate what we often think of fully as the condition of sin that, you know, right. that, um, but I'm, I mean, I'm fully, I'm fully convinced by it and, and think it's, it's a, it's a, it's lovely and good and true. Yeah. Um, and so I think that getting that kind of clear in your own mind is, is really important. The other piece for me is, that it, you know, part of what I think is, is helpful about it. And I, I, I get how for maybe some of this is kind of your personality type, but I think for, for me, what's, what's been helpful about this is that when I, when I hear people kind of resisting the, the idea of being perfected in love, part of what my instinct is, is to, to want to, to go back a step and say, have you received God's love, like in every part of your life, right? Are there places where wow. there's still room for you to receive more fully the love that the father has for you? Um, have you, you know, have you right. been in, in, have you been captured by, by that love completely? Because it, it, in, in my experience, people who have, yeah. have deeply received God's love don't object to expressing God's love, right? And being right. that they don't seem to think like, no, I can't actually be a loving person. 
Um, and it's not that they would say, oh, I can be. They don't sound prideful at all. It's just that there's a sweetness and an intimacy and a confidence in God's love that, that informs the way that they, how they kind of are in the world that, that changes what's possible for them and their, their sense of that possibility in a way that I think is, is really beautiful. Yes. I, when you're talking about sin and how we can embrace the full love of God, I, I remember I was um, speaking at Indian Springs Holiness Camp meeting in Georgia, not too far from where you are. Um, it's a, uh, you know, been around since 1890. One day, I and I, I gave a definition of sin. I gave Wesley's definition of willful transgression to known law of God. Well, it's actually not Wesley's, but you know, you get the idea. Yeah. So then I, um, then the next day or the next meeting, uh, Tim Tennant from Asbury Seminary was on, and he got up and uh, he gave another definition of sin. And I was like, oh man, I feel like. And, but his is this: is that any area of our life where we reject the presence of God. Mm. any area of our life and like so there's that willful conscious side of it as well like but but also like we're not we we want to be able to receive this love like and i i think god's put it into everybody's hearts to want to receive that same sort of love in their life and the fullness of the spirit the interesting thing that happens like as as we make this move and as we try to like figure out ways to describe this I, I found myself being helped by, I don't know if it's a band meeting or a class meeting book that you wrote. And then it's in, in this book as well. Um, going back to John Wesley's The Scripture Way of Salvation for the mm-hmm. wonderfully short definition that, uh, and he uses a, some other term, but that holiness is love or sanctification perfect. Love excluding sin. Mm-hmm. Love excluding sin. And I think like those few words I think really helps us like help us move beyond that um, move beyond just being caught by always having to sin, always having to be in a position of, of like what we're, what we're not doing instead of what we are embracing in the Mm -hmm. love of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think I I love that definition too. It's, it's short and pithy and yeah, the more you chew on it, it seems like the more it, it feeds, it nourishes, the more you engage with it. What, what is it, what, when, if you had to like encourage somebody right now and they're like listening, it's like, well, Andy, I, you know, Kevin, I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. Um, is it something like, how, how do you receive this blessing? How do you receive perfect love? And what is, I mean, that's the, 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 the typical question that comes to academics. Like, and you say, oh, well, I'm not going to tell you how, I'm just going to tell you what. But now you're moving to this place where you're going to be thinking about it more. So, like, imagine you're sitting down with somebody in, in a church, like, and they're like, okay, that sounds good. Uh, so what do I do now? Yeah. Yeah, at the end of Scripture Way of Salvation, Wesley takes that head on, and he basically asks, like, does this happen in a moment, or is it gradual? And that's been one of the kind of arguments in our tradition. And, and I think the the dominant stream in, in our recent history has been like so gradualistic that it never actually really happens. So wow. it's, it's sort of like an ongoing, it's like the language of maturing in your faith is the kind of thing that would be used, right? So you're gradually maturing in your faith, but you, the, the danger I think is that you suggest that you never become a mature Christian. I think this is the same challenge with um, information driven approaches to the Christ- to Christian formation, like Sunday school at its at its most extreme form, mm. s- sort of is teaching you that you you're a learner, but you never actually like learn what you need to know. And part of what you know, even in our context, where people are more and more getting like the next degree, like it, you know, for a long right. time, just graduating from college was a really big deal. 
now a master's degree seems to be kind of something that more and more people are going for. And like in, in our world, um, there seems to me to be a proliferation of doctor of ministry degrees. And so there's, you know, like credentialing kind of eventually goes to the next step because people, it, it leads towards like, well, I want to do more. I want to kind of do something that's, that's beyond. And so for those people, you, you kind of need like the next thing to be um, developed. So you have a master of divinity, then you have a doctor of ministry, then maybe next we'll have a mastering doctor of ministry um, <laughs> keep going. But, <laughs> but yeah. I think, but, but, but what I think is actually helpful about the way education works is that just to stick with college, when you graduate from college, you don't, nobody thinks that they know everything or they shouldn't. College isn't teaching them that. Right. Right. But there's also a clear endpoint that you have become a college graduate. And right, that means sure. something. And, and it's, it's a transitional point where the, the norm is now you go and actually step into the workforce to use the education that you've been getting since you were a child, but particularly over these last four or five years. And now you're using that to actually earn an income and to you're engaged, kind of you're stepping into the world in a fuller way than you were before. And I think that that's part of what is, is a helpful image of what information-driven approaches should be like. It's not that we don't need to study and learn about the faith and have catechesis sort of right, passing right. on of the key ideas of the faith from one generation to the next, but we need to have there be a place where we say, okay, you've been catechized. Now you are a mature Christian. Keep right. learning about the faith. Keep reading scripture. You haven't graduated out of reading the Bible, um, but you are an informed Christian who can read the Bible well now and, and read it yourself, help other people read it better and so forth. Yeah. Um, and I think that, so the way that Wesley talks about this shifting from, sorry, Andy, I just totally went down a rabbit trail, but your, your original question in, in scripture way of salvation, he presses against the gradualist and presses hard into the, the immediate, into the right, sort of right. more second crisis experience. Like it's, it happens in a moment. Uh, and he says that the way that you can know whether you're expecting it by faith or by works, and it's of course by faith, not by works is that if you are asking or expecting or thinking that something, you have to first do something, right? So if you mm -hmm. say, like, Kevin, how do I experience entire sanctification when I am still X? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an indication that you are still expecting to entirely sanctify yourself, which is never going to happen. That's right. not a promise in scripture. It's something you should despair of because it's not going to happen. Right. Um, and so Wesley wants to say, First, expect it by faith. So get really clear that this is a gift that God gives right. and you receive it simply through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection. And so if it's by faith, expect it as you are so that you don't have to get your act together first, but it's, it's a gift that's given without merit, without deserving. And so expect it as you are. And then he says, and if, if you, expect it as you are, then expect it now. Like yeah. what, what would, why would you need to wait to receive it? Uh, and so he, and then he kind of like revisits that and says, here's, you know, expect it by faith, expect it as you are and expect it now. Uh, and so for me, there's, there's a, there's, there's a, this is the place where I feel like if I, it's like, if I, these are kind of getting into the mysteries of God. And if I press too hard, sometimes for me, I start to feel like I'm, trying to be like overly logical in a way that right it just doesn't it doesn't work i don't you know it starts to feel like it's falling apart or something but i i think that is absolutely true so what do i do the first thing i would say to anybody is expect it by faith expect it as you are and expect it now and 
So for me, part of that is like, like I want to have an, I want to have an altar call. Like I want to have people come to the altar and just in simple faith say, Lord Jesus Christ, entirely sanctify me or fill me with perfect love um, for your sake to glorify your name. Um, Amen. And, and like expect to to receive it and expect that something will happen there. That's Um, it. Folks, just listen. That was as clear as an answer as you could possibly get. I mean, there's a, a book consolidated into that one sentence, like to have moments to, if, sorry for interrupting you, Kevin. I just no, want to make sure good. people realize the significance of what you just said, like to have an altar call, to have a moment. Now that altar call could come where you're in a conversation with somebody else. And you, as like Brengold would say, you pull out the altar in your pocket, right? And you yeah. sit down and you have this moment where you say, I receive your sanctifying grace in my life. And this can be a daily thing. I, I think like, I, like I'm one who affirms the language of a, of a second work of grace, but of course I just never think it stops there. It's like this continual sanctify, like uh, seeking moments of sanctification, but there, there needs to be a second moment. There needs to be third, fourth, fifth, you know, it needs to keep on moving. But this, this is the blessing that we have, like the, the, proclamation that's available to us to be able to share this. And, and I just encourage you folks to take, take that line seriously. And, and maybe even right now, maybe you're thinking, maybe you're driving as you're listening to this. Um, do you need to even pull over <laughs> and just say, you know, God, would you sanctify me in this moment? And that should affect your driving behavior too a little bit. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, Kevin. I just think that that's really clear. Now I'm not going to get into speed limits and all that sort of stuff, but I'm just, you know, God's, God's leading us to a place of being able to experience this blessing, like where we can uh, love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. That's a promise mm-hmm. that's available for you if you're listening. And so I just encourage, and if you're a preacher, uh, maybe this Sunday is a time for you to make that clear call. Say that again, Kevin, like what, what would you encourage people to say? Yeah. I mean, I, I would, we'd have to replay the tape. It's always dangerous. <laughs> like, what did I say the first time? But, I know. but yeah, I, I, I just want to sort of go in after it and just, you know, invite people to, to just directly ask Jesus, sanctify me entirely or fill me with your perfect love um, to the glory and honor of your name that I can yeah. love you fully and love my neighbor as myself you know, and, and receive all the promises of the gospel. I I love the idea in our tradition that, um, you know, that commands in scripture are covered promises Mm -hmm. and commands in um, scripture are covered promises. Yeah. And so they're, because it's, we're, it's not about works. It's not about our ability. And so if scripture tells you if there's a statement that's in the form of a command, it, it has to be something that God is promising to do in us is promising to enable us to actually be obedient to. Um, otherwise they would be cruel, right? They would be a sort yeah, of sure. like you, you're, you, you know, ha I caught you again, raising the standard up before you that you weren't capable of meeting just so I could watch you fall. And that's, that's not who God is. Right. Uh, and so, you know, when we read in like first Thessalonians four, it's God's will that you be sanctified. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, this strong, like, it's not, it's not like Wesley just came up with this idea. He's reading the Bible and he's, 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 I think initially probably like troubled by the gap between what he's seeing in scripture and what he's seeing in the church, what he's seeing in, in the lives of, of leaders in the church and those around him and in his own life. Right. Like yeah. this is, this, there's a gap here. Um, the other thing I want to say on this, though, 
Andy, I, I love kind of the way you like stepped into that moment and, and amen. And like, you know, to, to everyone who's listening, like, you know, chase after it because the God does it. Like there, yes. there are so many stories. I mean, it's happened at New Room where someone, the, the New Room is this, this yearly conference that happens in September in the Nashville area that's yeah. put on by Seabed and is the highlight of the year for me every year. And before we were even really explicitly talking about entire sanctification, there would be times where someone would come up to one of the leaders at New Room and just kind of say like something happened at New Room. And I'm not sure exactly what it was, but like, I'm just different. And, and sort of as people would come alongside them and engage with them, there were some that where it was kind of like, this, this seems like this is entire sanctification. Is that, you know, kind of, here's what, here's how we understand that. Is this, is this what you're experiencing and so forth? And uh, if that's what happens sort of accidentally when people aren't even directly asking for it, imagine wow. what, what happens when people with conviction and, and, and hope and faith um, do ask God for it directly. So I, I really have like a, a real like expectation and optimism that, that we're going to see in, in the, the near term future, uh, a revival, not just of the idea, but of the experience. Um, right. And the other press back I get a lot, or, or it's not necessarily even really pushback, but I think oftentimes just earnest curiosity is, do you know anybody who's experienced this? And so one, and it is sometimes an objection, like, why aren't there more people who testify to this? Right. Um, and I, I always sort of think of two things in response to that. One, you can't have it both ways. You can't have your objection to the doctrine of entire sanctification be that no one testifies to right. it. Um, <laughs> yeah. or, and then, you know, on the other You're hand, not allowed say to testify that, to it. Yeah. Right. And then on the other yeah. hand, say humble people would never actually testify yeah, to this. Right. Like you, you can pick one and then, yeah. you know, engage that and, and wrestle with it, but you can't, it's contradictory to sort of lift up both as, as objections. But the this second is part one of, is, it, oh, go, ahead, yeah, keep go ahead. This is part of why I love uh, why I'm going to Wesley Biblical Seminary. Not I, I, I've, I've said that I'm not running from the Salvation Army. I'm still going to be in the Salvation Army as a soldier. Um, but I'm going to Wesley Biblical Seminary because for their history, they have lifted up this doctrine. Um, yeah. And it's been a very clear articulation. And when I've, when I've been around Wesley grads, and I'm not a Wesley grad. Like, this is kind of like going into a whole new world for me. Um, but I've, I've heard this articulated clearly. And I love, I love the thought of like being able to just be willing to say, I experienced God's sanctifying grace at this time in my life. And to be able to testify. And I've heard that in Wesley grads. Now, now there's Wesley Theological Seminary, Wesley Biblical. So I'm going to Wesley Biblical Seminary. That's where, um, where Abby and I will be starting here soon. And saying, I want to highlight one thing that you said, just backing up a, a little bit uh, yeah. the, on the commands piece. Um, I, I can sometimes be over, overly analytical and overly technical with the language. And I want to kind of parse that out and work through it with people. And, and that can be a turnoff at certain times. But I remember overhearing a debate um, where people, where somebody was like kind of like being in the more negative side, like you can't really say this. And a very simple person said, well, you know, if, if God said be holy, I would think that we can. <laughs> yeah, this idea, the, the command, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if it's articulated multiple times, and this is a, the, somebody who wouldn't have a master's degree or anything like that, but just said, I think, I think if God's asking us, I think we can do it. Mm-hmm. I, and of course, when I say we do it, I, I, I'm saying like knowledge, like you said, this is a grace. This is a gift to us received yeah. from the spirit that, that God gives us. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I was the, the second point I was going to say on that is which you've actually already illustrated really nicely is that in, in my world, people, you know, it's, it's not common for someone to have an experience of something they have never been told exists. And I, I think, so the second piece to why more people have an experience entire sanctification, when I teach about this and, you know, in, in my context, I always ask, so how many of you have heard a sermon on entire sanctification and in, in the churches you attended before you came to seminary and, almost without exception, no one raises their hand. Um, wow. And so it's, you know, it's like, well, of course, then there aren't testimonies in your churches to entire sanctification. That's not actually an objection. That's just reality of how dead your churches are spiritually that right. this, like this, is, this doctrine has been buried and um, it's, it's not being lifted up. And so people don't know about it. They don't know to, to pursue it. It'd, it'd be the same as expecting someone um, to experience justification by faith in a church where no one actually, you know, like thinking about yeah, the, sure. the sort of really short version of like the Protestant Reformation and what Luther experienced, right? Yeah, like sure. it's, that wasn't happening because it wasn't being taught. And, um, and so in our, in our history and in our heritage, when it is being lifted up and taught, there, there are testimonies, there, there always are that accompany it. Um, but the, the last thing, and this is what I, I, I did, I did it in an elegant way, but the other piece that is challenging for me is that it's not formulaic and it's, this is about a gift that God receives. And in our heritage, there is a, there is also a tradition of, of kind of as like the like David Thomas at seedbed would say, travailing in prayer, like wow. wrestling with God in prayer. And, and people sometimes seek after this for a long time um, right. before they experience breakthrough. And that's, that's part of what I was saying about it. That's mysterious is that one of the, one of the dangers, I, one of the things I'm sort of finding myself like, sometimes feeling a check in my spirit about is I don't want to raise up a church culture where people get the confidence to ask for it and then feel like a pressure to pretend like they have confidence or a witness of the spirit that they've received it if they haven't. Like, I think the church needs to be a place where people can be honest and authentic about where they are and be encouraged to take the next steps with, with love and compassion and, and concern for their souls um, not a sort of like, here's the rule, you know, this is a cookbook and yeah, here's the next Yeah, I appreciate recipe. you saying that. That's so good. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that in because that, be, that can be the challenge, like this, this doubt that we might have. Uh, one thing yeah. I'll highlight too within the tradition, in my tradition that happened is William and Catherine Booth were more in line with the first, kind of the first two points that you had, like, go get it, you know, yep. just get sanctified. Yep. And um, yep. it was really, and, and this is highlighted in a, in a book by, uh, David Reitmeyer, who teaches at Asbury, well, he's retired now, used to teach at Asbury University. I recommend it to everybody on Samuel Logan Brengel called Sanctified Sanity. Um, But what, and and, and I hope the Salvation Army can continue to re-up this in our own tradition, Mm -hmm. is that what he brought was a more Wesleyan perspective of emphasizing waiting on the witness Mm -hmm. of the Spirit. This is why in the Salvation Army tradition, we had things called half nights of prayer. Um, mm. where we would, we would have like times where it would be scheduled out and it'd just be periods of waiting and testifying. And I, like, I'm sorry, folks, I don't know exactly what that looks like. I can't tell yeah. you the specifics of what yeah. travailing, waiting, crying in prayer means. Yeah. But I know that that's part of the, this tradition. And I'm um, hopefully we can, if, if, if there's doubts involved, wait on the Lord. Um, yeah. And I think that that's part of, I'm really glad that you took time to underscore that too. Anything else you want to say about that? Well, just the, to, to press in the, you know, the, 
revival is always preceded by times of repentance and deep prayer. I mean, right. it, it always proceeds. And so if you're, if you yourself are stuck in a time where, you know, you're, you're experiencing kind of anguish and, and prayer is hard, but you're still at it. Like, you know, be hopeful that, that the sun is coming up, you know, the dawn is coming of a new day um, in, in your soul. That's, that's often the place where like you're on the cusp of, of breakthrough. And it, like I said, it just happens time and time again. It, um, but also like, I mean, this is, this is the kind of like interesting, like both and like, you know, if you're someone who, who is like, this is a new thing. And like, I wonder if this is real, like, just ask, ask God, if it's real, ask God to right. do it in you. And um, part of what's beautiful and, and mysterious about the Christian life is very often God just does like, he just loves to answer simple prayers, prayed in faith. And uh, because he's good and, and he loves us. Right. Amen. I, w- I love to, I saw in the footnotes of your of perfect love, you highlighted another book, academic book that you have um, uh, old school and new school Methodism that was published by Oxford. <laughs> it's uh, dangerous here. We need to get it. We need to finish up our, our time. But uh, I would, uh, these tensions though, that we've talked about, they were expressed, um, you know, a hundred years ago. Uh, t- tell tell me a little bit about that. Why that's important? That old school, new school Methodism. What was going on in the in the church at that time? Yeah. So the short version is in that book. I was trying to pin down, like my I had this. This was in response to some other scholarship I'd read that just seemed off to me, and I was trying to figure out why. And my 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 thesis was that there actually was a stable, coherent theological tradition in American Methodism. And I wanted to figure out first if that was true. And second, if it was, when did that start to devolve or fragment? And, and so I, I, as I was trying to work through that, I came, came down on really the formation of the free Methodist church in 1860 to me, looks like a time when you had a clear public disagreement about theological, what it means to be a Wesleyan theologically or a Methodist. And it gets expressed really well in BT Roberts writing this article called new school Methodism and he's critiquing mm-hmm. new school Methodism. He describes it and it's clear that he's critiquing it to reject it and call his, his church back to old school Methodism. And he's actually tried for immoral and unchristian conduct in his annual conference and he's convicted. And then the next year he's tried again and he's expelled from the denomination for it. And so it's just a really interesting case study to see that like that part of it is there's a myth that you know, people who are more theologically liberal or progressive are much more open and tolerant and that people who are more conservative or traditional are more like narrow and likely want to just kick people out of the church. And in our own history, actually, the the people who are forced out or pressured out are often forced out or pressured out by kind of more revisionist or or liberal um, theologians or or church leaders. Um, And, you know, it goes both ways. Certainly there's, there's stuff on both sides of the street, but the key for me is just having that clarity of like who we are, where we've been. And and, uh, that's part of why I'm a historian is I find I I have a sort of bias towards the past as opposed to a bias again, that everything's always better and, you know, the newer it is and so forth. And so I think I have a bias towards the past in our tradition because I see fruit. Like it just looks obvious. I don't think anyone denies that's a Christian that there was like a movement of God's spirit and the beginnings of Methodism. And so for me, it's like, well, we can make the contextual move and say our context changed and those things are not relevant, but I just don't buy that. They look very relevant to me in our time and place. And if that's the case, then it seems like, well, there's fruit there and we're not doing it today and they seem relevant. So maybe what we, what we need to do is fairly simple. Let's try to, you know, redig these ancient wells. Mm, Amen. Go back to the old wells. 
song, a song in a Salvation Army tradition, um, it, it, using a, the, the language of Jacob, going back to the, the idea of these old wells that Isaac and Abraham had dug, I believe. I might have the, that story yeah. wrong a little bit, but that there's there's some power in that. And, and part of me, I'm, I'm uh, doing some work right now on William Booth's ecclesiology mm-hmm. uh, from an academic perspective. And like what I'm trying to do is essentially like there was a good what was going on here. Um, he might not have had the language to define it, but what's happened later is there's been revisionism that entered in to kind of articulate something that William Booth didn't probably mean. And the same thing is true with, um, with Wesley scholarship. Like, uh, it's like you get generations down and you end up defending something that came later. And Mm. so that's part of, um, I'm being very unclear about what I'm talking about at the moment, but basically the way, uh, how William Booth thought of the church as a whole is like part of the challenge I'm working through. Mm. But at the same time, like these, these type of things that you're describing with what was happening in Methodism, it was so interesting. It's just the same period the Salvation Army came into existence, 1865. They're trying to articulate who we are and like how the heirs of Wesley were not living up to their calling. I mean, if it wasn't for that, like the Salvation Army wouldn't be in existence. Yep. Yep. Oh man, I could go for a long time. Okay. And I want to respect our time and our listeners. Thanks so much for checking this out. And I always ask a question at the end of the podcast. This is called more to the story. So is there more to the story of Kevin Watson that people don't normally get? Is there, is there something that is uh, just a little bit more about Kevin that could help us today? Hmm. Well, as, as you talked about at the beginning, I'm, the more to my story right now, it feels like it's all related to moving. Um, so, you know, I would, I would love for I don't know when this is going to be released, but I would, the more to the story for me today would be, I'd love for people just to be praying for me as, as we move, praying for patience and um, praying for, you know, just appropriate perspective as, as we transition. There's just so many, as you, as you know, well too, there are so many details related to moving and so forth. Um, But the, the, on a sort of happier note or you know maybe more superficial note i'm a diehard houston astros fan which is oh there you go over the past few years you can see the is that who that is the champs in the back i gotcha yeah yeah that's the my brother-in-law made that for me for christmas he got tracked down a copy of the houston chronicle the day after and uh um so anyway i love baseball and um, have been an astros fan since since about 1985 so oh wow so back in uh Nolan Ryan period, maybe back yeah, there? The yeah, the first time I ever saw the Astros play was in the Astrodome, and Nolan Ryan was pitching, and Craig Biggio was catching. He, Craig Biggio's a Hall yeah, of Famer yes. who mostly played second for the Astros, yes. but actually came up as a catcher. So, Yeah, so. Oh, great old players. Mike Scott, great old pitcher. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. I, love the, love yeah. the, uh, I love the orange Astros, you know, yep. that, that period. Yep. That was great. Yep. Those um, rainbow jerseys were awesome. <laughs> now, my good friend uh, – uh, Zach Bell, uh, Major Zach Bell, he leads the Salvation Army in Houston. And so you won't oh, be wow. far away from him. And uh, Zach, you need to get Kevin, you do a, go to a few of the cores in Houston, take him to a, a, an Astros game or something. Like we can work that out for you. I think we can, can do, you'll be in Waco, not far away. And I, yeah, um, that sounds awesome. I studied with Billy Abraham's coming there too. And, and yeah. did you study with Billy at uh, SMU? Yeah, he was on my dissertation committee, and I had several classes with him as a PhD student. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to, to being in the same neck of the woods as he is, and hopefully getting to work with him some. Love it. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Kevin. It's been a blessing, and you know you can find this book at Seedbed.com. Um, I'll post links to it. But I hope that this is a book again. Like I'm going to be recommending Perfect Love the rest of my life, and I appreciate you, Kevin, um, taking time to get this down in a form 
that can benefit the church is a blessing.